Well, good morning again, church. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 30. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Richard or Greg will get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. I left mine up in the office, so I got one here. See, so I got my Bible. (laughs) Kind of. So, Matthew 26, verse 17 through 30. This morning. The title of my message is The Most Famous Meal. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. This opportunity to gather as your church. To open up your word and to know, Holy Spirit, you are here to speak to our hearts. To change us, transform our lives. And to draw us closer to our relationship with you. We thank you for for your word and how powerful it is to change our lives as you work through it, Lord. We pray that we would have just soft hearts, open ears to receive all that you have for us today. Lord, we do pray, as we always do, week after week, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again, would you especially touch their heart this morning? Help them to know and see their need for you and and come into that saving knowledge and, and Receive this grace and forgiveness of their sin. So bless our time together, Lord, we pray. Bless the children as they're being taught your word downstairs as well. To your glory and your honor and your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. read a story about little Johnny whose teacher asked him, Tell me honestly, do you say your prayers before you eat? To which little Johnny replied, I don't have to. My mom's a good cook. I like this one better. Another story of a little boy who was asked to pray for dinner, but before he bowed his head to pray, he took a look at the dish, and then he closed his eyes and prayed, Lord, I don't like what it looks like, but I'll thank you for it anyway. (laughs) Famous last meals. I did a a quick research, and I found a whole bunch, but I'll just give you a few of them. These are, uh, if you could have one last meal before you die, what would you pick it to be? Well, I found a few from history. Cleopatra downed a handful of figs before she went down. I I could go for that. I like figs, but apparently she also took a lot of poison at the same time. Before breathing breathing his last, Napoleon Bonaparte ate liver and bacon, a pork chop, sautéed kidneys, garlic toast, and roasted tomatoes. James Dean ate a slice of apple pie with a glass of milk right before he died. Elvis Presley gobbled up four scoops of ice cream and six chocolate chip cookies before suffering his fatal heart attack. Finally, the last one, convicted murderer Walter Legrand, before being executed in 1999, ate six fried eggs, 16 strips of bacon, one large serving of hash browns, a pint of pineapple sherbet, a breakfast steak, a cup of ice, 7-Up, Dr. Pepper Coke, hot sauce, coffee, two sugar packs, and four Rolaids. Why the Rolaids? <laughs> it's like, what, what's the point? Well, here before us this morning is one of the most famous meal ever uh, ever eaten, the Last Supper. A number of dramatic events took place this night, including the establishment of a new ordinance, a new covenant. Jesus wanted his church to practice what's called communion or the Lord's Supper. And so not normally we don't do communion, you know, second week of the month. But, you know, usually we save it for the first week. But I thought with the text we have today, how beautiful it would be to close our study off with communion. So we're going to do that this morning. 
A lot of other things happen during this time. Judas will be identified as, as being the betrayer. And, and so we're going to take a look at three things if you're taking notes. Number one, the Passover. Number two, the betrayal. And number three, the blessing. Let's look at the Passover first. Look at verses 17 through 20. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, What do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now understand, the Passover feast was a very, very important feast for the Jewish people. I mean, from the very inception, it was meant to be a picture of what Jesus would come and do on the cross. Of course, a key element to the Passover is that the Jews would take a lamb, and that lamb would then be sacrificed. And it's interesting to me that when God instituted the order of uh, ordinance of Passover in Exodus chapter 12, we're going to look at that this morning, we'll close with Exodus chapter 12, but God told the Israelites there in chapter 12 to take a lamb. That's where he starts. He says, I want you to take a lamb. Then a couple of verses later, he says, I want you to take the lamb. And then a few more verses later, he says, I want you to take, take your lamb or, or their lamb. And when you think about it, that really is the progression of how a person comes to see Jesus, come to know Jesus. First, he is a lamb. Then he is the lamb. And then he is your lamb. First, it begins with recognizing that, that Jesus is some kind of religious figure, some kind of uh, uh, you know, person with significance. We're not really sure. You may have a general respect for him from a distance, but he, he's a lamb. But secondly, he's the lamb. comes a moment in our lives where we recognize that he's more than just a, a, a teacher. He's, he's different, unique from all other figures in history, more than a prophet. He's actually the son of God, deity in human form. He became the lamb, as John the Baptist said, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then you've got to take it a step further that he becomes our lamb. We receive him as our Lord and as our Savior. A lot of people today acknowledge, oh yeah, that Jesus is, is a God. And they acknowledge, yeah, He's in heaven. They acknowledge that He has great power. Yet they've not embraced Him as, as their own. So here, the Passover feast, they were to take the lamb, the, the sacrifice, and the blood was to be shed, and then applied to the, to the doorpost, if you, if you call there, back in Egypt, on the top and on either the side. See, God's judgment was coming down on the people of Egypt, on the firstborn of Egypt, because of Pharaoh's disobedience that would pass over the homes that had the blood on the, uh, applied. Same way the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for us. You know, it, it doesn't do us any good unless we apply it. It's not enough to know that Christ died for our sins. It's not enough to believe His blood was even shed for us. We must appropriate it. And that means we must confess our sins and understand that He is faithful and He's just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness and that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin. We have to turn, we have to recognize that and embrace it. Now the scripture tells us in verse 17 here that the disciples asked Jesus, where do you want to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus tells him, he says, go to this certain city and, and a man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand and I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Well, according to Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, the disciples that were sent were none, none other than Peter and John. Now, you know, we understand that, that Jesus had an inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And if you remember that, you know, it was, it was Peter and John that came to the tomb first when it was empty. 
So Peter and John are sent to go arrange a place for the Passover that Jesus is looking forward to to eat with his disciples. And we know that it says in the other Gospels, when you get to the city, look for the man with a pitcher of water on his head. Tell that man you want it, you know, that the master says we're going to celebrate Passover in the room that he has. Now the reason that the uh, the man carrying a pitcher of water would be a tip-off is that normally the women had the water on their head, not the man. So they would see this and go, okay, that's the guy that we're looking for. But if you look at the whole picture, it's supernatural. It's an event that Jesus did to go, wow, it just blows me away. Go to the here and find a man and open the door and, and the guy's going to give you the room. Supernatural appointment even out of itself. But, but, but we read here in verse 20, this is what I want to get to. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. So they get there, they get up in the room, they, 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 they get the table set there, everything's prepared, and they, they sit down with the twelve. Now as much as I appreciate Leonardo da Vinci's contribution to art and his paintings, his most famous painting, The Last Supper, he, he really got it wrong. I, I mean, he shows them all on this one side of this really long table, and they're all kind of almost like they're leaning in forward to take a picture. You know, say cheese, and they're all leaning, and say, they're kind of looking that way, and, and everyone smiles, except, you know, Judas, he's got an evil grin on himself. No, but, but, but that's not the way it was. In that culture, they didn't have tables like that when they ate. The meals were basically uh, spread out uh, on the ground. And the tables they did have were, were close to the ground, U-shaped tables, and they didn't sit. In fact, the word in the Greek here literally means that they recline. The, the idea is that you would be laying down, kind of rely, you know, reclining on a pillow on one side and, and kicked back from the table, and you're kind of in the semicircle and, and uh, you know, not all behind one table, smiling for the camera, and, and, uh, and, and you'd, you'd have this meal. But it was an intimate meal. I mean, these guys are together. They've been together for a long time. And so you take your time eating and you're talking and enjoying the events of the day. You'd sing together and just being with your friends and family. You know, kind of like Thanksgiving. We're going to celebrate it in a, in a week and a half. Passover was very much, very special, a very special feast to the Jews. And they would laugh and they would have a, a good time. And I mean, imagine these guys... Three years they've been hanging out together. You gotta know they had some practical jokes going on and then some things happening. So they're, they're having a good time. They're, they're loving the Lord, but they didn't realize that this was gonna be their last supper. So according to the other gospels, we know that the disciples were, you know, basically up to their normal antics because immediately after the evening began, they started arguing. Who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? I am. Or not. Am so. Am not. Am so. Are not. And Jesus. And Jesus does something unexpected. He smacks them all upside their heads and makes them shut up for an hour. No, he doesn't do that. He rises up and he, he, he takes off his outer garments and he gets a bucket of water and gets down on his hands and knees and begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, washing people's feet when they come in the house wasn't unusual. You know, in that day, in that age, you'd generally wear open-toed sandals and the, the, the roads were dirt, you know, and so you go to Jerusalem or Galilee and, and, and you get your feet dirty, you come into a house and a servant would come and they would wipe your feet before you came into their house, wash your feet. That was a custom. But no one had done that. They all got into the upper room. They got into, for, ready for the Passover. No one washed their feet. And so Jesus, assuming the position of a servant, kneels down and, and wipes uh, it washes each one of the feet of the disciples. And after that, he told them, you know, that this was an example to them. He says, if you want to be great, you should learn to be as a youngest and learn to be a servant. 
Now here's what I want you to understand. Jesus was in total control of the evening. Every single step of the way. He knew what was about to happen. He knew who was going to do what. He knew Judas would betray him. But what do we still see Jesus doing? Washing the feet of Judas Iscariot. Now if it were me... I mean, John would probably be the first because of the way they're, they're sitting. John would be the first and, and they'd wash, oh, John, yeah, the one Jesus loved. You read about, oh, wash his feet, yeah, all nice and clean. Then Judas would have his feet out there and I'd get that still wool scrubber. Oh, yeah, you know, die me. You know, got to do what I got to do here. But it's amazing to realize that Jesus paid such careful attention in his attitude displayed to each disciple exclusively, individually, so much so that not a single one realized who it was that would betray him. See, very calmly, Jesus says, let's, let's have dinner together. And they sit down, and then he takes off his garment, and he begins to wash their feet. And we just see, in a very confident, very calm, and collected manner, Jesus says to his disciples, now, i got to tell you, one of you are going to betray me tonight. Now, that's point number two, the betrayal. Look at verse 21. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I mean, that had to just send shockwaves in that room. I mean, these were guys that had spent so much time together, three years, they, they knew each other very well, and suddenly Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me? Look at verse 22. And they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Now, to their credit, they're, they're all asking, Lord, is it I? I mean, the reason it's to their credit is because they recognize, they realize their own personal potential for sin. They recognize that each one of them had it in them to actually do something this wicked. Well, then Jesus answers, look at verse 23, 24. He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. So what do you think Judas is doing right about then when he hears that? Maybe his hand's shaking a little bit. Maybe sweat coming off. Maybe he's just, you know, getting this, this uh, dry mouth, a lump in the stomach. And I, I think he, I mean, he knew what he was doing. I think many times we picture Judas, even in our own minds, that he's a guy, he's got to look evil. You know, he's got to have the, the, the deep, deep, dark hair, and, and, and he just doesn't have a beard. He's got a goatee, you know, and he's got a handlebar mustache, and, and he's always wearing black, and he's got the black robes, everybody has colored robes, and, and he's got, you know, his hair's got colics, you know, on either side, sticking up, and they're just kind of walking around, maybe hunched over a little bit, and you know, it's sinister, ha, <laughs> I'm Judas. I mean, that's the stereotype we picture him to be, but that's not the case at all. It's quite possible because he was the, the disciple chosen by the Lord to be in charge of the money. I mean, think about it. Who would you put in charge of the money? The guy that looks the most honest. I mean, he, oh, this guy looks honest. He, he looks like, like you can trust him. So Judas quite possibly had an appearance of holiness. And, and, and we, like the other disciples, would never expect anything different because Jesus says, hey, take care of the money. But he was even concerned about the poor, remember? It can't be him. But look at verse 25. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, which I'm certain was very private tone, you have said it. Judas knew it was him because he already, already did it. He already betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 
Now, as I mentioned, Judas Iscariot is often depicted in, in film as a wicked and a horrible person, but sometimes in film they, they, they depict him as some misunderstood hero. Now, I'm a little bit older, but I remember back from the 70s, Jesus Christ Superstar came out. To, and he was pictured that way, Judas was. You know, Judas was, was loved, loved Jesus like everyone else, and all Judas was trying to do was to, you know, help Jesus sort of show himself for who he really was, you know, uh, uh, so by betraying him, it was Judas' hope that Jesus would declare himself as Messiah and establish his kingdom. And that's really what Judas was up to. He, he's a misunderstood guy. It all went wrong. And, and he didn't mean Jesus to be crucified. That is so completely bogus. That is not the case. Judas knew exactly what he was doing. He was a man with a free will who never, who never chose to believe. And ironically, he was exposed to the power and the truth of God on many, many occasions. I mean, he was there when Jesus presented the Sermon on the Mount. He was there when Jesus walked on water. Judas was there when he, when he, when he heard the teachings of Christ, when he saw the miracles, the dead raised, the, the blind received their sight, the deaf were able to hear. Yet Judas persisted in his unbelief. It was a choice he made. See, it just goes to show you that, that a good example is not good enough. You know, because there's never been a man that walked this earth that was a better example than Jesus. Needless to say, that Judas betrayed him. There are people who say, well, if I could just see a Christian, you know, act like a Christian, and they weren't so hypocritical, then I might, I might be a believer. No, it's just an excuse. It's just an excuse. So I'm not saying that there's not hypocrisy in the church, and I'm certainly not saying that we as believers should not be good examples. But these, you know, unbelievers will allege this so-called, you know, hypocrisy of Christians, and, and it's really just nothing more than just something for them to hang their disobedience on, because Jesus was a perfect example, and Judas still rejected him. Judas still did not believe. Now, as he continued to sin against the light, he became more susceptible and more open to Satan's suggestions. In fact, John's Gospel tells us in John 13 that the devil put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. But Judas had a choice. He could have said no. He could have resisted. But he was motivated by greed. He wanted something out of this. We already know he was skimming off the top of the money he carried for, from the other disciples said so. So, so someone might say, well, that's not fair. They might say, you know, it's not fair that Judas ended up this way. You know, he, they say that because Scripture says that Jesus would, betray, would be betrayed. It's almost as though Judas didn't have a choice. That, that he was this pawn in this chess game. Again, not true. Judas made his choice. Yes, it is true that God in his sovereignty has determined that the Son of God would be betrayed by a friend. But give this, divine foreknowledge does not destroy human responsibility or accountability. Let me say that again. Divine foreknowledge does not destroy human responsibility or accountability. Judas made his decision free and clear and he was going to be judged accordingly. He decided what he would do. And there in that upper room where he was ready to play his hand, the Bible tells us that Satan filled his heart. The devil took residence in his life, and the heart of Jesus is scared at that moment. He went out to complete his task. Now again, I point out that, that he would have been the last person the disciples expected. And I say that because the things are not always as they appear. You know, sometimes the people we think are the most spiritual are the least, and sometimes the people we don't think are spiritual at all are far more committed and godlier than we may realize. Outward appearances can be deceiving as it was demonstrated here. And again, in verse 25, Judah says, Rabbi, is it I? You know, kind of continuing this little masquerade at this point, sort of playing along, wondering if Jesus really knew, but, but Jesus knew. 
clearly knew and, and, and identified him for what he was about to do, and he leaves. One last comment about Judas. Interesting enough, uh, I may mention the idea that he was probably sweating and, and you know, his mouth was dry and, and, and maybe his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth. But we know that after uh, Jesus was, in fact, condemned, uh, we see in another week or so in chapter 27 that Judas, Judas felt so filled with remorse that he decided to turn his money back in. In fact, turn a page over to chapter 27, look at verse 3. It says there, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, verse 4, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Listen, Satan always destroys his soldiers, whereas God glorifies his. Satan uses up those people that he chooses to use and he spits them out when he's done with them. God puts into those he chooses to use new life. But isn't that the way it always is with, with those who don't know Christ? The self-centeredness is so strong in them that they, they want you to go along with, hey, come on, let's go, let's go party. Hey, let's go do this. Hey, what do you, what do you think we make you do this thing or do that? And, and you know it's wrong and, and the Spirit is t- telling you don't do this. But you, 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 you fall and, and you do it. And then you go tell the guy, oh, I'm sorry, man, I shouldn't have done that. I'm a Christian. That's, that's what you, I don't care. Doesn't bother me any. He doesn't care. But you gotta live with the consequences. But it really doesn't matter what happens to the other guy. See, Judas comes back and says to these guys who we collaborated with to betray Christ, hey, look, I blew it. I never should have done it. Here's your money back. I'd rather not done what I did. I wish I could take it back. And he finds himself totally frustrated from within. And they say, so what? Get out of here. None of our business how you feel. Take a hike. See, folks, there's no friendship. There's no bond with those in the world and with those who are trying to serve Jesus. None whatsoever. And I have to believe that this is the same mentality of Satan himself. After we find ourselves trapped up in some sin, uh, some misdeed, Satan will, will tempt us and say, hey, why don't you do this? Come on, do this. And we finally give in and then, I can't believe you've done that. And he condemns us for doing what, what we, he tell you, trying to tell you to do. You call yourself a Christian. See, Satan prowls around like that roaring lion seeking whom he may, may devour and destroy, whereas Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And remember this, please, 1 John 1, 19, when we fall, when we fail, and, and we will, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Don't get ripped off by the condemnation of the devil. Well, now this wicked infiltrator is gone. Judas, Jesus can now get down to business with his boys. And this brings us to our third point, the blessing. Look at verses 25 through 30. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Here we read of the blessing of the new covenant that Jesus is establishing. Now again, remember, they're gathered in the upper room. They're, they're, they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover feast. Now to prepare a Passover feast, it wasn't like, hey, I run to the store and get a few things. No, it was a feast. There was a lot of preparation going into it. They'd have a lamb and they'd make this huge meal. And even in the early church, 
you know, that they would have feasts. They call them agape feasts. We're going to have our Mexican agape feast next Sunday. This was now the last meal that they would eat before Jesus would be crucified. And take a look at verse 26 again. Jesus is there. He picks up a piece of bread and he says, This is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat. And then he gave thanks and gave them the cup. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, with all due respect to our Catholic friends, there's no such thing as transubstantiation. Okay, I cannot find any clue, any place in Scripture that tells us that Jesus was literally saying that the bread was now going to be turned into his actual flesh and this wine, this juice was going to become his blood. Jesus, as he often did, spoke very symbolically. And they say that he was speaking literally here to just not fit in with the word pictures that, that Jesus would often use. I mean, after all, Jesus said he was the vine, right? Where are the branches? He did say he was a bread of life. He said that he was the door, you know. I mean, so not to insist that Jesus is an actual door. He's, he's a door. He's a loaf of bread. No, of course not. Nor should we insist, nor should we say that, you know, that his body became flesh and, and the, uh, you know, the, 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 the bread becomes his body flesh and the, and the juice becomes his blood. It's a symbol of something. An important symbol. A symbol of great significance, but there's no supernatural process that takes place that miraculously turns it into his, his body and into his blood. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was trying to speak to the people about coming into a real relationship, real communion with him, he told them of his body being food and his blood being drink. They said, is this man going to give us his actual body to eat? And they misunderstood even back then. He's speaking spiritually, he's speaking of something far deeper than that. He's instituting a new ordinance. He's about to show them the final sacrifice was sin for sin that was going to be accomplished once and for all. No longer would there have to be animal sacrifices uh, to cover our sin. Jesus would be that final sacrifice. The penalty of our sin was going to be absorbed on Jesus Christ. You see, even in the Passover celebration, it all points to the sacrifice that Jesus would make for our sins. Now, we're no longer required to observe Passover, but everything about Passover points to Jesus Christ. So what I want to do in the remainder of our time this morning is just to look at how the Passover really points to Jesus. And then we'll enter in a time of, of communion just as ourselves together. Let's look a little closer to this Passover, see how it re- relates to Jesus and communion. Passover is the first of seven feasts celebrated by the Jewish people. It's considered the Israel's foundational feast upon which the other six feasts follow simply built upon. Again, we know Jesus was there in the upper room for the Passover because Jesus is a Jew and he's gathering there with his Jewish friends. He's doing something unique with his Passover. He's going to break the train of thought halfway through and establish the new covenant. And he's going to bring out, as I said, this unleavened bread, as they do in Passover. He's going to now ascribe it to his, his broken and bruised body. That may seem, uh, not mean, mean that an awful lot to us this morning as Gentiles, but the book of Exodus chapter 12, we can see this great comparison. So turn with me, if you would, to, to Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to make this comparison this morning. Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 1. 
Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And that's an exciting statement. God is telling Moses and Aaron, here's what we're going to do. We're starting something brand new, a brand new beginning. Well, what? Why the beginning? Well, we know earlier in the, in the book there were several plagues that went out and affected the Egyptian people. The Israelites, up to this point, they've been in bondage, slavery. They've had this heavy taskmaster hanging over their heads, causing them to labor and co-labor extensively, uh, collectively, with no reward in mind. Moses had been lifted up to tell Pharaoh, let, let my people go, let God's people go. And each time as these plagues would come in and affect the Egyptian people, Pharaoh had the opportunity to yield his heart, to say, okay, I'll let your people go. But, but he doesn't. Instead, he hardened his heart over and over again till finally the last plague comes about, the plague of the death of the firstborn. However, in preparation of this plague, God gathers together the, the, the children of Israel and they say, listen, this is going to be a Passover feast I want you to do. A meal that you would celebrate from this day forward, from generation to generation. It's going to be a start of a brand new beginning for you. And a brand new beginning for the Jewish people. So much so that we're, we're going to change the calendar. This is going to be like, like, like day one. You're going to start your calendar on this day from now on. Now again, we can look at this Hebrew feast of Passover that reflects a brand new beginning. And see, this is where we get our Lord's Supper. This is what, where we get communion. I mean, what does communion represent in so many ways? It's a brand new beginning for us. You know, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. As we, we recognize what we're new creatures in Christ, we come to the communion table and we're blessed by that. Brand new beginning. The old covenant, the old agreement was that you had to, to bring animal sacrifices. You had to, to, to do that to cover your sins. But here's a, a new beginning. Jesus says, I'm going to be your sacrifice. I'm going to be the lamb that was slain to take away your sin. But this is just the beginning of parallels. So many more. Look at verse 3 now of Exodus 12. He says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. That's what we talked about in the beginning of the study. There's the first step. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. So what's taking place here in light of New Testament teaching, in light of the roots of communion being here, is that each man is responsible. Each man has to, to, to opportunity to involve himself in this particular sacrifice. Stay with me here. So God gathers together Moses and Aaron and says, Guys, we're going to start something new. Brand new calendar, new beginnings, new sacrifice, a little different. I want you to go out, I want you to get a lamb, unblemished lamb that was not defect, bring it home on the tenth day, and during the next four days, the kids in the family, they're gonna, you know, this is, you know, back right at, in Egypt there, the kids in the family are gonna enjoy this lamb. They're gonna, it's gonna be in the house, each man has his responsibility to get this lamb, it's gonna be like a pet to them. And I know the kids' hearts are going to get attached as a part of my ultimate purpose. But what I want you to do for those four days, from the 10th to the 14th day, is to examine that lamb. Make sure there's no spot, there's no blemish in this lamb whatsoever. Each man has that responsibility. And if you don't want to take part of that sacrifice, you don't have to. But each one has the opportunity to take for himself a lamb, examine the lamb for his own sacrifice. From the 10th to the 14th day. How is that compared to New Testament? Well, think about when Jesus came into Jerusalem 
We've looked at it since Matthew 21. Jesus came into the city, our Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And before He was sacrificed, man, He was examined, was He not? <laughs> First He had the, 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 so you might say the kid, you know, the, 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 the Palm Sunday, Hosanna in the highest, glory to God in the highest, save now, save now, you know, you had people with childlike hearts. They had the opportunity to go attached to the Lamb. But then for four days after that, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and, and the people in, in, in places, the religion, you know, the religious authority, they examined the Lamb. They paid careful attention to what he was saying, what he did. He was without defect. What did the Pharisees ask him, Jesus, during those few days when he, they had the opportunity to examine him? Hey, where does your authority come from? We want to know. What do you think about the resurrection? Should we pay taxes? They examined him. Question after question, coming to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, the examination process to see if in fact he was undefiled and clean. He passed the test. And then, same way in the Hebrew Lamb would also pass the test. Look at verse 4 of Exodus chapter 12. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the Lamb, right there. Then in verse 5, the examination, your Lamb shall be without Blemish, a male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. And you might want to cross-reference or drop down to verse 22 of chapter 12. Because you're given how to apply the blood on the door. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Let's compare that. Let's parallel that to the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, we read that, that they took a hyssop branch, placed vinegar on it, offered it to Jesus Christ who was on the cross, and the Bible says he received it. They took the hyssop branch in the Old Testament and dipped it into the blood. And what did they do? They placed it on the top of the doorpost and on both sides, the sign of the cross. So when the angel of death moved over them, it saw blood on the top, blood on both sides, and they were told to use a hyssop branch to sprinkle that blood. And I'm certain the day when, when, uh, when uh, Jews of that day were watching Jesus die on the cross, some of them had to see the symbolism that was happening there. You go, man, what a parallel. But there's more. They also say in previous verses that we just read that they are to eat this lamb. They're going to partake of it together. John's Gospel records some interesting words. In John 6.53, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you'll have no life in you. Same truth is given to these Hebrews. Yeah, you're going to eat the lamb. You're going to have to partake of the sacrifice. And if you don't, then you're, you're not a part of the chosen group. You're not an Israelite. Same way, communion, partaking of communion, it's for believers. And this is so interesting, but, but it doesn't end there. Look at verse 10 of, of Exodus 12. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. So you're going to roast the lamb bones and all the places where the lamb could no longer be seen. The, the lamb's flesh completely disappears. What happened to Jesus' flesh? Completely disappeared. His body was not found in that tomb. Nothing left. It was empty. Look at Exodus 12.12. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am 
the Lord. Now look at in verse 13 as we tie it together with communion and the Lord's Supper. Uh, God says, Now the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Picture in your minds, we're back in the upper room. We're back with Jesus, and he's celebrating the Passover feast. He's sitting there with his disciples. He's placed the bitter herbs in their mouth, and they taste the bitterness. Once again, reflective of Jesus receiving that, that vinegar, that bitterness that, that on his lips. They're reminded of the, of the hyssop plant. Then they're going to pass around four cups during this Passover service. And each uh, one of those cups represents four specific promises found in Exodus chapter 6. Turn back with me now to Exodus chapter 6. We're almost done here. Exodus chapter 6. I want you to look at these four promises that really bring all the symbolism uh, into in, in in proper perspective. During the Passover feast, there were four cups, and each cup represented four of the specific promises that God had for Israel. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. That was promise number one. You no longer be uh, a burden, drink of that cup. Promise two represents the second cup of the Passover feast, and it's what the Hebrews do today. I will rescue you from their bondage. In other words, I'll free you from slavery. Third cup, I will redeem you, it says. Now, most Bible scholars believe that this was the third cup. The third cup was the one that Jesus said, take this cup and drink. It's a cup of redemption. But then look at verse six. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Did you catch that? With outstretched arms. I mean, how could they not see this? I mean, how could Christ be sitting at the supper table with his disciples and come to the third cup and remind them of God's holy promise through the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I will redeem you don't forget, with outstretched arms, let's partake of this new covenant. And just hours later, they would see their Savior on the cross with outstretched arms. Allowing them to really become the people of God, where He would be their God and they would be His people. A promise that given not exclusively just to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles, to all of us. You know, 16 times in the Bible is a phrase, with outstretched arms, all having to do with God's delivering His people from bondage. So I'd love just to see these parallels back and forth, and I think it's important for us to see this. Once again, now let's go back to, to Matthew 26, and we'll wrap it up. And we'll enter into communion ourselves. Look at verses 28 and 29. Jesus says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it with, new with you in my Father's kingdom. This would have been radical to these men in this room. What do you mean this is your blood? I mean, you're saying this symbolizes your personal blood? I mean, so you're representing the lamb that, that was slain? I mean, the, the, the angel of death is going to pass over our house. You're saying this is you? And, 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 and you know, pretty much you say, absolutely. That's exactly what it signifies. But I'm, I'm taking it one step deeper that the symbol will be my blood on the doorpost of your heart. 
And I will cleanse you. Simply believe in me and the angel of death will pass over you as it passed over those in Egypt with the blood in their doorposts and on their houses. Think about this this morning. What would it have been like for those living in Egypt at the time of the Passover? And the angel of death came, rose up over Israel that night and began to inflict judgment on all those that hadn't had their doorposts sprinkled with the blood. And one by one by one, the eldest began to die off. And I'm certain the next morning they all kind of looked around and said, Oh, I don't believe this. The Bible tells us there was severe wailing and crying that was going on. And here the Israelites, the Jewish people, they're coming out of the door as they were instructed to not come out until morning. And they come out their front doors and there's just bodies lying around of these dead Egyptians. And they run back into their house going, am I safe? Or or is my kid safe? Is my firstborn still alive? And he's there and he's alive and he's doing well. Thank you, God. You saved me. You saved me. Everyone else is dead, but God, thank you. You saved me. You know what? Can I suggest the same thing happens as we partake of communion? So grateful that God saved us. And I, can I suggest to you the same thing is going to happen when we're raptured out of here? You know? <laughs> All of a sudden we're here, poof, we're in heaven, we're going, whoa, 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 I'm really here. I can't believe I'm really here. Oh wow, I'm really here. Look, who else is here? Oh, you're here too. Isn't it great? We're here. Hey, we're so and so. No, we wouldn't say that, but, but oh, we're here. But then you look down on earth. Whoa, not good. Lord, I'm so glad I'm here. See, Jesus makes that way for all of us. But just as each man had a sprinkle of blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of his home and on the doorposts of his hearts, so do we have to receive Christ in our lives. See, when I see what God did for the Israelites and how they gather together for the Passover, they get together and go, hey, we get to celebrate the Passover. They're excited about it. Why? Because they're remembering the day that, you know, that the angel of death passed over them. In the same way, we can be excited about celebrating communion together. God has set us free. He's cleansed us of our sin. No longer in the bondage of death and sin. But that angel of death is going to pass right over my house when I die. That the, the body may be lying there and pretty tore up. I'm going to look down and go, man, that pear-shaped thing is, is, is done for. I'm glad to get rid of that. I get that new body. I'll say, poof, poof, you know. Poof, poof. These legs and muscles and hair. Poof. You know? Yeah, all right, Lord. All right. Listen, as we close, as we enter time of communion... Let this be a reminder to us of how blessed we are as God's people. Don't forget to rejoice this morning that you are saved, that you know the Lord, that you're going to go to heaven. See, for the Jew, this was something radical. Wow, we really are saved. We're really saved. And I think that if we could just get a glimpse of this excitement from this passage, I mean, that as we, you know, celebrate communion, it'll change our our lives even tomorrow, the next day, and the day after. Because even though the Lord's Supper is a great time for reflection on what Jesus had done and is doing in our lives, it is a time of celebration until He returns for us. Discussing the Lord's Supper, the Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 11.26 in the Amplified Bible. I, I like the way this reads. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are representing and signifying and proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death until He comes again. You're representing, you're signifying, and you're proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death until He comes again. Lastly, as we prepare our hearts for communion, we know that after Judas said, Is it I? And Jesus said, As you said, that we know that at that point Judas left. He wasn't a part of 
communion. That's because communion is for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've been born again. You've surrendered your heart to Him. And if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, then now would be the time to make that commitment to Him. Have your sin forgiven. Receive communion with us and, and, and be blessed by what Christ has done for us. So we come to the communion table. We come with joy. We come with great anticipation for the Lord's return. We come in reverence. We come in honesty. And if there is something that isn't right in your life right now, this is the time to deal with it. Maybe there's been some sin that's been plaguing you for, for days, weeks, maybe even years. What a great time to say, this is where I'm going to make a stand. This is where I'm going to turn from that, confess it, and by the help of God's Spirit, I'm not going to go that path anymore. I'm not going to sin that way anymore. I'm going to go in a new direction. From this day forward, I have a new beginning with Jesus Christ. And what a great time to make that commitment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love and grace. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to this communion table. And after looking at your word, it's more than just eating a piece of bread and drinking a little cup of juice. It's remembering what your son did for us upon the cross. How it all points back to that Passover celebration, the first one, Lord, where the lamb was to be sacrificed and the blood shed uh, placed on the doorposts and the lentils, signifying what your son Jesus would do for us, the cross. Lord, communion takes us right back to the cross where our sin was dealt with, taken care of. Lord, we thank you for that, that the guilt and the shame for our sin has all been taken away as we placed our faith and trust in you. And I do pray, Lord, if there's anyone here that has not placed their faith and trust in you, they're not born again, Lord, right now, even as they're sitting there in their seat, they would make that prayer, they would make that commitment to you and turn their lives over to you. And Father, for... Uh, us that are believers, maybe there's some areas in our lives we've been struggling with. Maybe there's actual sin going on that you've convicted our hearts that we need to repent and turn from that. And we need to find forgiveness from you first and foremost and then forgiveness for someone who we've offended or hurt, Lord, wherever the case may be. But we want to come right with you, Lord. Cleanse us, forgive us. Thank you that your word says if we confess our sins, you are faithful, you're just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Bless this time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.